Good morning. Hey, there we go. My name is Brandon, uh, one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. Um, as you said, we've been in a series uh, going through the books of First and Second Samuel, uh, watching the rise of a man named King David. And today we hit Second Samuel chapter six, and I need to open our sermon talking about something incredibly exciting: Hebrew grammar. Don't act like, don't act like you don't, yeah, okay, some of y'all love it. You know, you're not even acting like you don't love it. You love it. Um, and I have to, uh, because there's something uh, unique happening in our text. And uh, what I want to do is try to illustrate what's going on. Uh, there, there is probably, uh, there's probably nothing that I do that drives my wife more insane than this. Well, I mean, maybe there is, I don't know. Yeah, she says, yes, there is. We shouldn't talk about it right now. Not the time or place, babe. Um, uh, but uh, it drives her insane when she's telling me a story. I think the story is dragging on a bit, uh, and I say, no, no, I, I get it, and I do this, right? Don't judge me like you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, I'm the only one that's ever done that in this room. Kidding me? What if? Anyway, point is, when I say I, I'm doing that, I'm, I'm going, I, I get it, right? Keep going. I get it. Keep going. No, no, I, I, I get it. Keep, keep going. Um, Hebrew grammar has a way of saying, I, I get it, keep going. I, I get it, keep going. I get it, keep going. Generally speaking, in this type of historic narrative, it's like every four to six verses you might find it, but in chapter six, all of a sudden something happens. We, we find it uh, more than one a verse. It's just, I get it, keep going. 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 The point is that you're meant to read, the way the author wrote chapter six, you're, you're meant to read it with speed movement. You're not, not supposed to camp it. You're supposed to speed, movement. And so what, what we're going to try to do today um, is we're going to try to treat the chapter the way that it's meant to be read with speed. So good news might be a shorter sermon than normal. Bad news probably won't. Um, uh, and uh, what we're going to do and the way that we're going to do it um, is, as we said before, we're going to treat Samuel like a story, like a narrative. Not It's not a legal brief that you um, dissect little pieces. It's a narrative that you enter into. And so we, uh, we are going to collectively be the follow camera for the ark, right? Chapter six, all about the ark of God, which I will explain in a minute, but we're going to be the follow camera, right? So you've seen a movie, you've seen um, the, the character, main character out in front, you've got the camera behind, and as the character moves from room to room to room, there's a follow camera that just follows the character from room to room to room. So we are going to be the follow camera for the ark going from scene to scene to scene. And what's going to happen is we're going to find ourselves in three different scenes, three different locations, if you will, each with our, with our own little lesson. But then our story is going to have an ending. And it's one of those endings to the movie that's like, where did that come from? It makes no sense. It makes no sense where that ending came from. But in that confusing, where did that come from ending, what's going to happen is our scenes, our story is going to get tied together, but we'll get to that in a minute. Right now, scene one, the new cart. Let's go verse one. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring them up from there, bring up from there the ark of God which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, 
who sits enthroned in the cherubim. All right, the, uh, the ark, the ark of God, this was the most important symbol of the relationship between God and his people. God and his people, Israel. It represented both the presence and the kingship of God among his people. Israel had something called the Holy of Holies, uh, which was uh, the back room in the temple. It was the most sacred place. It was where uh, the high priest, the head honcho priest in all the nation could go once a year and only once a year. You know what was inside the Holy of Holies? The Ark of God. But backstory and long story short, fascinating story if you want to go back and read. Uh, Israel at one point decided, you know what, let's take the Ark into battle with us. And they lost. And the ark fell into the hands of the Philistines, another nation. But the ark wrecked havoc. And so the Philistines were like, we don't want it. They gave it back. And then the Israelites, what they did was they took the ark and they just put it in an obscure little town about 70 miles out. And that's where it sat, 70 years. 70 years, it just sat there, obscure little town. And now David is bringing the ark back. Verse 3, and they carried the ark on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. So they're bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, and they're carrying it on a New cart. And this might seem like an insignificant little point, but it is anything but insignificant. Um, if we go back in the Bible, go back to Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, earlier in the Old Testament, you find God's instructions on how the cart was to be carried. Two things you're going to find. One, only by the Levites, only by a certain tribe within Israel. And then on poles, there's supposed to be poles that went through these rings that held the cart up. Never on a new cart, by poles, with poles by Levites. That's how it was meant to be carried. And there, um, this practice of the new cart, you know where that came from? You know who started that? Philistines. Philistines started it. This was a practice. They were carrying out a practice done by the Philistines. In opposition to what God had said to do, they were doing what the Philistines did. A lot that could be said we know it's not good. Keep going. Verse 5. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error. And he died there beside the ark of God. So the ark is being pulled by, uh, by oxen on a cart on its way back to Jerusalem. The oxen stumble, the, the ark wobbles. And a man named Uzzah, a religious man, reaches out, reaches out to touch, to grab it. And God burns with anger, strikes him dead on the spot. Strikes him dead on the spot. Why? Why? Because no one but the high priest once a year was allowed to touch the ark. See, here's, what, here's what's happening in scene one. 
One act of disobedience is leading to another. One seemingly insignificant act of disobedience is leading to another, but this time it's got devastating consequences. So here's the, here's the principle from scene one. Little sin leads to greater sin, sometimes with devastating consequences. And how many times have we talked about this? Um, a, a double take of the gym today leads to a porn addiction tomorrow. Some of us in this room are in danger of affair after affair after affair one day because we think double takes of the gym are not a big deal. But what happens when you wake up with that porn addiction is all of a sudden, no, man or woman, and ladies, I am not unaware that this is not a male problem only. No man or woman can live up to your imaginary world. Or this one. Uh, a little greed today leads to being a workaholic tomorrow. And so one day, your family is just tired of playing second fiddle to your career. And you've got to lose your family to realize that you can't buy a satisfied soul. Can't buy a satisfied soul. A little greed leads to being a workaholic tomorrow. And so it started... But dancing for David is now getting pretty darn serious. And where this scene is going to end is with him asking one of humanity's fundamental questions, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? David, if you looking at a dead man laying next to the ark, says, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? And remember what the ark represented, the presence of God among his people. He's saying this question. He's asking this question. How can the presence of God ever come to me? If he, all he did was reach out to touch it and he's dead, how can the presence of God ever, ever come into my life? How? How? One of humanity's fundamental question, and I think uh, if we just, humanly speaking, put ourselves in David's shoes, a pretty understandable question. How can the presence of God ever come into my life? But rather than try to answer the question, David tries to escape the presence of God, which takes us to scene to the unexpected home. Verse 10, so David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Here we are, scene two. The, the ark of God, that which is meant to belong in the holy of holies is now in the living room of a Gittite. You know what a Gittite was? I'll tell you, Gentile, a non-Israelite. And so this thing that was meant to be this symbolic, not just symbolic, but the representation of God's presence among his people, Israel, is now in the living room of a non-Israelite. This representation of the presence of God among his people is in the home of a Gentile. And if we put ourselves in the shoes of an Israelite, like imagine, imagine with me, it's not... Um, 2018, we're not in the West, in Houston. Imagine where it's 500 BC, we're a 
13, 14-year-old Hebrew boy, Hebrew girl, we're reading Samuel for the first time. Like our, like our, our village, we just got our first letter of Samuel, and we can't wait for our turn to read it. And we run out to the, the local tree where you read under the shade, and we're rolling through. And back in the day, there was no first and second Samuel. It was just one big book of Samuel. And all of a sudden, we hit this. The ark of God is in the home of a Gentile. You would have been astounded. Like you'd have been dumbfounded by this. You would have had no grid for what's happening right here. And not only did it end up in the living room of a Gentile, but you blessed that family. You who are supposed to be for us. Bless the Gentile. You, you would have been utterly dumbfounded by this. So here's the, here's the principle from, from scene two. You ready? Grace is always surprising. Always. Always surprising. Even more so if we put ourselves in Obed's shoes. Like, we, we think Obed lived next door to where Uzzah reached out and was struck dead. So put yourself in Obed's shoes. This is what he knows. Um, there's a wooden box with a couple of golden cherubim on top. Um, man, religious guy, good guy, reaches out to try to touch it, and he's dead. And now you, David, want me to take that box and put it in my living room? Are you out of your mind? Like, who thinks Obed would have been like, yeah, yeah, I'll take that right over here. I'll bring it to me. Like, there's no chance. Unless he was like, you know what, I got some neighbors I don't like. I'm going to have a big cookout for them. I'll tell them, go rub it. It feels so nice. And I'll, you know, like, other than that, no, no way Obed's taking it. No way. Obed would have resisted the presence of God coming into his home. If you're in this room right now and you're resisting the presence of God coming into your life, you are in good company. You're in the company of Obed. But just like Obed, he breaks down all our effort to resist, sets up shop, changes your life. And just like Obed... We know from Chronicles, does it for generations to come. But now David sees this, and in what I think is a bit of a bandwagon move, um, you guys get on me for being a bandwagon fan, whatever. Uh, I think this is a bit of a bandwagon move by David, right? Um, he's dead. I don't want it. Oh, you bless his family? Yeah, yeah, I'll take it back now. Um, David sees it, and he goes and he takes the ark back and takes it into Jerusalem. And we hit scene three, the tent. Verse 12, and it was told, King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all, the, and all that belongs to him because the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he, he is David, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. Hey, quick side note. A few weeks ago, I referenced the movie Footloose. Um, when, when they were trying to like say, hey, we should be able to have our high school dance, they quoted this verse right here. And David danced before the Lord. Kevin Bacon did. True story. All right. Back to the sermon. David sacrifices um, this animal. He's wearing, they did not quote the, and he wore linen ephod though, for the record, but whatever, Hollywood, I guess. Um, 
Here's the point. Linen ephod, uh, that was priest garment. You know who were the ones who did the sacrificing? Priest did. What we have is a king doing the sacrifice. We have the king doing the work of a priest. Hang on to that. Flag that one. Uh, we might need it in a minute. Let's keep going. Verse 15. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, also the wife of David, looked out, at, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought up the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. So David... Um, bringing the ark back into Jerusalem, pitches a tent, a tent that's supposed to function like a tabernacle, a place for the presence of God to dwell, a place where um, the ark belonged, that God would be back among his people where he belongs. And what David does next gives us a bit of a glimpse that he understood a bit, even if it's through a cloudy window, as all the Old Testament saints did in a way, even through a cloudy window, he knew the answer to his question. How does the presence of God ever come to me? Verse 17, And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people, the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of, and a cake of raisins in the to each one. Doesn't that sound like a great party? Then all the people departed, each to his own house. See, here's the, the glimpse that we get into the answer that David knew. I don't come into your presence. You don't come into my presence through morality, through military victory. It's not through me being the king that they wanted, like the one who had gotten fight battles and be victorious. That's, that's not how the ark comes to me. It's through sacrifice. Through sacrifice. You see, here's the principle, if you will, that we get from scene three. You don't earn your way into God's presence. You don't earn your stay in God's presence. Your way and your stay in God's presence comes through sacrifice. It comes through sacrifice. This, um, where it says burnt offerings, burnt offerings were the dedication, like I'm dedicating ourselves to you, God, and peace offerings. It can also be translated fellowship offering or the offering of communion, where we come and we, we, don't, we don't have peace with you. We don't have fellowship, communion with you, God, because of my morality, because your holiness is so low that if I just do enough, I can work my way up into your presence. He got a glimpse that it was through sacrifice and through sacrifice alone. And as much as I want to talk about Jesus right here and right now, we have to deal with this. Where in the world do you come from out of nowhere? You make no sense ending. Verse 20. And David returned to bless his household. But Michael, the daughter of Saul, also the bride of David, came out to meet David and said, how the king of Israel honored himself today uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, it was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel. 
the people of the Lord, and I will celebrate before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. David takes the ark, and he brings it from this obscure little town into Jerusalem. He sets up a tent where the presence of God would tabernacle, where it would dwell. And he dances before the Lord with excitement. And it's time to go home and bless his family. And he walks through the front door, whatever kind of knobs they had back then. And his wife says, what you did today was unacceptable. It was shameful. Men should never do that, least of all a king. You don't dare expose yourself like that. Dare you, David. What you did today humiliated me and our family. You humiliated yourself. You shamed your God today. You see, unfaithfulness doesn't just have to be physical acts. It can be a complete erosion of trust, which she put on full display. You see, chapter 6, this confusing ending, ends with an unfaithful and an unfruitful bride. And so how this fits, why the author included this, is really anybody's guess. Unless you know that the story of David isn't just about David, but about a David to come, and unless you know that his bride isn't just about his bride, but about, his, about a bride to come, unless you know that when you open up chapter 6 and you put it in the narrative of the Bible, that this is what you find, that Jesus is the true ark, the place where God truly and fully dwelt, that Jesus is the true tent, the place of safety and security in the presence of God, that Jesus is the true king, the one who humbled himself coming as a servant. Jesus is the true priest who didn't just offer a sacrifice, but offered himself as the sacrifice who died to create a faithful and a fruitful bride. And so it tees up the question for you and I today of how do we, how do we live as a faithful and a fruitful bride? And the answer to that takes us right back into our story. It takes us right back to scene three and two and one. And it starts with not buying the lie that we earn our way or our stay in God's presence, that what got you into God's presence is what keeps you in God's presence. Jesus' sacrifice of himself. And so when you today get up and come out your aisle and you come down and you take bread and you dip it in a cup, remember that what's happening right now is he is saying, hey, listen, I have secured your stay. I'm reminding you week in, week out, in my body and in my blood, that your stay has been purchased by me. You have to earn your stay. I have earned your stay. You just keep coming to the table. You just keep coming. Every week, keep coming. 
keep believing and trusting that what, what's happening here is a reminder of what Jesus has done for you in your place. You keep coming and let me remind you that I've earned your stay for you. You come to the table, delight in his offering. And then we let, we let grace stay surprising. We let surprising grace stay surprising because in this story, in this story, you're Obed. You're the outsider made an insider. You're the outsider made an insider. That, the one that was outside brought inside. If you grew up inside the church, born into a family, and you don't remember a day that you didn't love Jesus, that grace ought to be astounding to you. And if you were 25, out of nowhere, like I was, ran into some people, you thought they were weird, they invited you to church, you found that they were weird, and all of a sudden, you love Jesus, that grace ought to be astounding to you. It ought to be astounding to you. Like, captivating and consuming. And if grace isn't astounding to you, we're never going to get where we started today. We're never going to get to fighting little sin because we'll never see it as important. And here's what's going to happen. Here's the warning that I think all of us in this room need to hear. When grace becomes assumed and not astounding... You will try to fix sin, but you'll never try to fight sin. And those aren't the same. Fixing it, we deal with our symptoms. We manage it. We, we just kind of keep it out of the public square. Fight it, we attack it at the root. And we attack it at the root. We give our lives, we enter into a community where we attack it at the root. We open up our lives to one another that you and I might attack your sin at the root and you might attack mine at the root. We might do this together. We attack it at the root. And if you do, and if you do, you'll dance before the Lord like David. And if you don't, you'll run from his presence just like David. So what do you say we don't wait? What do you say this week in your parishes we stop playing the game and we start attacking it at the root? We open up our lives to men and women and just say, I don't want to deal with this when I have devastating consequences. I want it now. I want it eradicated out of my life now. What do you say we fight it at the root now and we hear the warning from 2 Samuel 6 and we live as a redeemed bride to be faithful and fruitful? What do you say? We don't buy the lie that we earn our way or our stay into God's presence. We don't let grace ever cease to be astounding. And we, we get busy killing sin before it kills you. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. You can. You can. You have the resurrected life of the David to come in you, in us. You can. You can. You're not powerless. You can. You can. You have his resurrected life living in you. You can. You can fight it. You can fight it at the root so that we together as a community might get to dance before the Lord.
Let's pray. Father, I, I know that um, far too often we, we fail to talk enough about your son's resurrected life being lived out through us and the power to live a life pleasing and honoring to you through him. For that, we as a church repent, I repent. But may we see that we can feel the warning of little act of disobedience becoming greater act of disobedience leading to devastating consequences. And we can attack it before it ever gets there because we have the life of your son in us. May that be us. May it be true of us. May we be that people who take his resurrected life and we get to the root. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.